Super cycle. It's a super cycle, but just for some commodities. You are listening to Kickle Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. Editor Niels Christensen is in. Hello, everybody. Happy weekends. Kickle correspondent Paul Harris. Hi, Paul. Hello. How is everybody? Everybody's good. And the theme of mining is energy transition. And we have with us Dr. Sarush Pur. He is founder and chief executive officer of Nano Explore, which is focused on the graphene space. Sarush, welcome to Kiko. Hey, happy to be here. Uh, Sarush, you thought the graphene was so important. You published a book on it in 2016. Can you talk about why you're focused on the material and how that has led up to the company that you run currently? Well, advanced materials are going to be the, the building block of our future. And uh, one of the most important materials for our future is going to be graphene. So it got the Nobel Prize 2010 because it impacts pretty much a lot of different products and applications that, that we actually consume and directly in contact with. That's why it's important material. And, uh, and, and yeah, I drafted that book in 2016, which covers uh, you know, the main technologies to produce graphene and the applications of those. Can I just uh, ask straight off the bat, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit familiar with graphite, but what's the difference between graphite and graphene? So if you think graphite as a deck of cards, right, graphene is one. So graphene is like, these layers of graphene come on top of each other and build graphite. So okay. if you get a powder of graphite and exfoliate layer by layer, you end up with the graphene in a powder format. Thank you. I think also, I mean, it just, it's just the complexity of the lattice structure that I think that you have as well uh, for creating. Uh, why am I even explaining this to Sarush? But I mean, that's just, I'm, just, I just I, I'm trying to add on it. It's just my conceptual framework that I have uh, just around uh, graphite and graphene. But um, I did want to have you on because uh, it is interesting that you're based out of Montreal. We hear a lot about Nouveau Monde graphite uh, about, and then just how that's powering what is happening within the battery material space. We start off at the top with uh, Niels and what did gold get up to Niels? It's the, it's the middle you love to hate or hate to love. I don't know. One or the other. Um, it was gold was going to do it was fed, like started this morning, start up, open up my computer. Gold was doing fantastic above 1800. And uh, it actually hit a, a six week high today. Um, and then Powell came out um, terrible, terrible, actually, online conference. Uh, it was hosted by the um, uh, South African Central Bank, but the for some reason, uh, audio issues, and you could, like you could barely the, the massive echo, major problems with with what Powell was saying. Um, unfortunately, you know the gold market heard him loud and clear uh, when he said that um, you know he thinks that the bank is on track to taper. Um, whether that happens in November, December, you know, doesn't really matter, but they're on track to taper this year and uh, could be finished this, this tapering process by mid 2022. Um, after that, everything's just moot. Um, gold prices dropped like $30 um, lost uh, in the 1800 level again. And um yeah, it's but it's 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 interesting. So you know, we got this. It's this issue between um, is the Fed going to be behind the inflation curve or not, and how badly are they going to be behind the inflation curve? Um, that's what's that's what sparked the the rally this morning. And you know, talking to some analysts, even Powell's comments, nothing's really changed. You know, the the Fed still, as much as they want to, they're still probably going to be slow to tighten interest rates and this is going to keep real yields lower um, and uh, inflation pressures higher. 
I'd just like to sort of draw a, a little bit of a parallel here. If you were the CEO of a public company, you could not speculate on the future of your share price or your company's performance in the same way that power does with the Fed saying, well, we might do this, we might do that, we might do something completely different. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Well, yes, but he has to, like, he, he kind of has to. One thing he did say, and I will give him kudos for this, is um, their communication strategy this year has been really, really good. Um, you compare this year to you compare this year to 2013 when you had the taper tantrum and, you know, the, the, the messaging from the Fed was absolutely terrible. They learned actually a lot of lessons and they, they have set up the market really, really well. You know, equities hit record highs on Thursday as we're, we're talking about um, tightening up monetary policy. Um, you can't you can't ignore the fact that the Fed has been um, doing a decent job with its with its messaging. I think you could debate that depending on which direction you're coming from. It has been messaging, but it, you know every every month seems to be well. We might do this, we might do that, we might not. I mean, it's not really saying anything. There's a lot of hot air coming out, but not a necessarily a great deal of certainty. And I, I would not call that clear messaging. <laughs> well, it's. It because it's 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 the nuance behind it, and it's yeah. So like you know, and just and just the way they've set it up, they it, it's, it, you know, they, they they don't spook the markets. You know, like they would, they would have one uh, Federal Reserve member, one central banker, come out and say, "Oh, we need to tighten rates. We need to tighten rates now." And then you'd have you know, pretty much, you know, in the next hour, you'd have another central bank saying, "said Oh no, we need to we need to you know remain dovish and we need to remain accommodative." And, you know, to get through the, the COVID pandemic um, so that they've had this back and forth force. Uh, they've had this back and forth messaging um, and it has been to sort of placate uh, markets, you know, and you just you haven't had this this um, this panic, which is which has been, you know, and that's and that's why gold's been lackluster, because. Um, there's just there's no reason to have security. The, the Fed is is very much signaling what it wants to do. It's it's moving at a snail's pace, and um, markets love it. You know, there's no reason no reason to hold gold when you can just buy equities that keep rallying. Uh, gold, Niels, what did the uh, weekly gold survey say? Um, so, well, the weekly gold survey was done just before Powell came out. Um, and I had to redo my entire story, but uh, 87% of analysts are bullish and 62% of retail investors are bullish. So like there's, there's, there's definitely sentiment. And, and regardless of what Powell says, um, this week, uh, break evens, uh, the, 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 the yield between uh, nominal, uh, nominal bonds and uh, treasury uh uh, inflation protected uh, called tips. The break evens between the the gap between uh, those two rose to uh, decade highs. Uh, the ten year break even is at its highest point since ninety uh, six, I think, um, and the five year is at its highest level since uh, two thousand and three. Um, so inflation pressures, inflation uh, uh, fears are real in the marketplace. The other inflation bet, of course, is Bitcoin, uh, and uh, we really did see a strong rally with uh, that um, uh, that speculative asset uh, this week. But it has come down to earth this week on Friday, Niels. Yeah. So um, this week, uh, 
a new Bitcoin ETF was launched. And as the, as that was launched, uh, Bitcoin prices went up to uh, a record high above uh, $65,000 a token. Um, now they're back down. Um, I wouldn't say a complete collapse. I mean, they're still at, at 60,000. They've kind of given up those gains since the, the launch of the new uh, Bitcoin ETF, but you know, at 60,000, that's not, uh, that's nothing to shake a stick at. Jeff Curry, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, global head of commodity research, told Bloomberg, we are in a commodity super cycle. He sees oil hitting $90 a barrel and copper could be between 11000 and 12000 a ton over the next few months with a strong potential for sizable spikes higher. As of this recording, uh, West Texas Intermediate crude is in the low 30s, or should say in the low 80s, and three-month copper is slid below $10,000 a ton. Uh, metals are in a super cycle, uh, and I think uh, this is always the debate uh, just regarding transitory inflation, but uh, he just sees so many supply shocks uh, that are happening. Also, you have years of underinvestment that have happened in the resource space, specifically what is happening with uh, oil. He sees there's going to be a real difficulty in terms of actually being able to get oil prices up uh, just with the uh, difficulty. Um, you're having a higher hurdle rate. Uh, people want to be made whole in the space. Also, there have the ESG issues that are pushing down. What was interesting was this discussion about the difference between seeing a bull cycle in commodities and then also seeing a super cycle in commodities. A uh, super cycle has to be when you see actual structural change, you see legislative change. So he was pointing to instances in the past where you saw Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. You also saw when uh, China was admitted into the WTO, and then you just saw all of that investment, all that material investment that was needed into China and how that's been powering the commodity space and what we saw the super cycle. Now we're seeing uh, the move to ESG. So what it is, it's really kind of a bottom up. It is something that is driven by populist policies and it's driven by uh, in it's driven by um, it's driven by a broad demand uh, for the EV space. Uh, Niels. Well, I just I kind of wonder, though, is there an appetite for $90 a barrel oil? Like, is it, you know, like, what does that do to economic growth? What does that do? You know, like how how much can uh, businesses pass on those higher prices to consumers? I, you know, I think this is this is going to be really I think I think they're right. Um, it's just going to be really interesting to see the impact of, you know, $90 oil on the, the global economy here. Paul? Well, one of the stories of interest related to this that I read this week was um, somebody questioning whether, um, you know, the, the world is trying to wean itself off oil and it's, you know, to a certain extent, it's being successful there. And the question is, will the, what's replacing oil, the electrification, renewables, will that come on fast enough? Um, so this person was saying that, you know, oil is going to bounce back because, renewables or whatever's going to come isn't going to come on fast enough so we're going to have to fall back on oil the danger being that we've let's say retired some of our oil infrastructure so the price is going to go way up yeah that is exactly the point that jeff curry was making just regard because you've taken all of that uh, shale oil capacity offline and uh, right now you have people that have just been killed in terms of the equity position so they need to see a sustainable higher oil price and uh, they need to see even a better oil price in the past so they're not really looking at the oil price per se but jeff curry was making the extent that they're kind of looking at their equity price what's going to be very interesting if these high oil prices actually persist over time as well too 
Uh, that should push people into EVs, but then also you have uh, copper at eleven to twelve thousand dollars a ton, and then I see nickel has been going berserk this week as well too. So you're going to be looking at high material prices uh, within the EV space. Um, I wanted to bring you in, uh, Sarush, on this as well. Uh, you know, you're tracking the space, you're dealing with uh, suppliers uh, into the battery material space. What's uh, the best research, or what is the best outlook for you uh, in terms of the EV space? Yeah, so uh, I mean, what you gotta understand is uh, when when we have an EV program coming out, uh, we have let's say suppliers like us, we've been on those programs like three to four years ahead of the production time, right? So we have a pretty good uh, visibility of those programs coming out, and 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 we see that uh, there's a lot of intention and a lot of uh, let's say investment being done on the new EV programs and platforms. So we think that the, the trend is definitely toward electrification and there's a lot of intention to go there. Having said that, I think there's a, there's a little bit of optimism of how fast the transition is going to happen. And, and that, as, as you just talked about it, I think that's going to that's gonna impact on the oil. Uh, I have a just. To, I saw Niels had a question. I'm just going to bring in a minute, Niels. But um, I'm I'm going to I'm going to risk uh, kind of uh, interrupting uh, the uh, interview uh, that we're going to have later, uh, Sarush. But um, I just want to bring it up now because it comes up. You are doing all of this work in the lab. You've been doing all this work in the past in the lab, and then we always hear things around. Uh, you know. Um, uh, uh, being able to kind of swap out uh, materials just when materials become too expensive, uh, whether that's going to be cobalt or you see uh, with uh, the announcement that uh, Tesla made that uh, it was going to be uh, ramping up uh, iron batteries. How, when you when you look at uh, the space hole, and this is a big question, Sarush, but uh, how a you know how able are people to do uh, things around um, you know being able to swap out materials, uh, being able to kind of find new ways around. Uh, materials that might be getting too expensive. Right. So material change is a, is a long process. Normally, it takes two, three years for, for the OEMs to, to be able to change a material. Having said that, when you got into a program or when your product is already being used, it's much faster to go to different programs of the same OEM, right? Um, we, we change, we replace many materials in our business, like different sort of carbon-based materials, like different uh, different engineered graphite-type products with switch uh, with graphene. But the reality is um, the process, you know, has the design validation, technical validation, and also uh, testing the supply chain uh, capacity to provide those type of products. We are producing 40% of worldwide uh, graphene right now. So we're at the largest capacity in the production. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing and a bad thing because uh, if, if, if you cannot supply, there's not a second player in the market that can actually bring the confidence to the OEM that somebody else can also do that, right? So it's, 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 these are some challenges in the advanced and new type of materials. In, in more of materials like cobalt and, and the announcement of Tesla moving toward LFP type batteries to have no cobalt. I mean, LFP, are, LFP is, a, is a low, uh, let's say, a low quality type cathode in a sense. It, it has lower capacity than, than NMCs and NCAs out there. But the materials of that is already available, uh, and they're, they're they're pretty much everywhere. And you don't have this cobalt problem, which which few com uh, countries know, like Congo, are the only ones that can produce cobalt, right? So so to to get out of that problem, they're settling for a lower, uh, let's say, quality cathode, but a much higher safety type cathode. Niels, you had a question. Yeah, I just I wanted to go back, uh, Suresh, to your earlier comment about, you know, sort of them, uh, you know, maybe expectations are, are a little bit too optimistic for, you know, uh, EV vehicle uh, uptake. 
Um, you know, the U.S. wants to have, what, 50% of their vehicles uh, EV on the road by, um, or 50% of the market in EVs by 2023, 20, 20, I guess. Or sorry, yeah. 2030, 2035, no? Yeah, 2030, 20, yeah. Um, is that realistic? I mean, you know, like, is there, do we have enough capacity to meet that demand? Well, it's hard to answer that question because, uh, you know, uh, when, when there are targets, there are a lot of people work toward those targets and always, you know, magic happens in those type of situations. But, but the reality is, let's look at right now, the supply chain and auto industry, we have this cheap shortage problem as kind of like um, putting a lot of pressure on the, on the OEMs and tier ones, right? And that's just cheap shortage on in existing internal combustion engine type vehicles. Now, when you go to EV, it's a totally new supply chain. So you can actually build it very correctly and, and, and supply locally and, and have a lot of redundancy on that and, and you know, get it done correctly, time, time would be a problem, right? So I, I would say uh, the world is moving toward those type of ESG targets. Uh, if those are achievable or more of a political milestones for, for, for different people, it's hard to say at this stage. Um, so, Rouge, um, so let's sort of dial this in a bit closer to your company. I mean, uh, in terms of graphite feedstock, they're, they're, as far as I'm aware, there aren't that many sources of graphite. There aren't that many sort of graphite mines. So presumably what you, you, you have to sell a consistent product to, to your customers. Um, but you have to take in graphite supply from, from, from different sources. And obviously, as a, as a natural mineral, each source is slightly different. So is, is getting your, your graphite feedstock, is, is that a real challenge for you? So right now, um, there is an oversupply in the graphite market, right? So we buy the graphite. We don't even need to do offtake agreements because there's oversupply in the graphite market currently. Though that that oversupply can actually very quickly become uh, undersupply if the battery world grows the way the world uh, the analysts are talking about, right? So looking at that, there's there's need for new production in the future. Today, uh, we don't have any problem in, in, in getting our graphite. There's a lot of graphite. And also the grade of graphite we use are small flake graphite, which has less of an interest for other industries. And when people do mining, they mine the large one and a small one, not just the large one, right? And the large one goes for a spherical graphite production, which is the main component of the anode. But the small flake graphite is the one that if the EV market grows, they're going to end up mining more graphite so it's going to be more of a small flake graphite sitting in the inventories and and we think uh, that they're going to be a downward pressure on the price of a small flake graphite it's pretty good uh, so if i understand this as well too so you have miners that are mining like the large flake graphite which is able to turn into an anode you're able to take the small flake or you know or, or lesser graphite but you're able to do your own manufacturing to kind of bring it up to a spec again that will make it similar to it. is is that uh, basically is that an, an uh, a very, a very, very overview of Sarush. Yeah, we buy a small flake graphite because we have the highest conversion efficiency from a small flake to graphene than a large flake to graphene. Okay. A large flake is like three times more expensive in a sense. So a small flakes for us is good. But the fact is when they do the mining, they mine a pit and it's, and it's always a mixture of a small flake, mid-size and large size. They easily sell the large flakes of graphite, small flakes has much less of a buyers out there. So that's why there will be even more of oversupply in the future for our graphite. 
Let's turn to miners and developers and juniors, but first our sponsor. Cisco Mining is drilling out its flagship windfall gold deposit, one of the highest grade resource stage gold projects in Canada with a world-class scale. If you follow junior space, you have seen windfall's headlines. Windfall is located in Quebec, a tier one mining jurisdiction operated by Cisco's team of trusted and experienced mining executives. It also has a distinction of being Canada's biggest drill program. Windfall has announced a series of bonanza grades from drilling and a new discovery one kilometer north. A preliminary economic assessment on the project estimated that the first seven years of full operation produced 300,000 ounces of gold per year at an average grade of 8.1 grams per ton gold and an all-in sustaining cost of $610 an ounce gold. Capital expenditures, just over half a billion Canadian. Windfall is estimated to generate 8.2 billion Canadian in gross revenue and 1.7 billion in taxes and generate hundreds of jobs. That's the Cisco Mining, and we thank them for their support. Paul, I'm going to let you run here. What did you see in this week's Junior and Mining News? Okay, thank you, Michael. Uh, top of the list for me, I think, was Iron Gold, which announced an initial indicated resource estimate of 3.4 million ounces from the Gosselin Zone, uh, one and a half kilometers from its Cote Gold Mine construction project in Quebec and Canada, and, uh, and another 1.7 million ounces of inferred. Um, that represents a 33% increase to the measured and indicated resources uh, for Cote, um, containing about 124.5 million tonnes, grading 0.84 grams per tonne. Um, Gosselin is a 70-30 joint venture between Iron Gold and Sumitomo Metal and Mining, uh, and commercial production of Cote is anticipated to start in the second half of 2023. Um, an updated economic report stated that uh, Cote will produce about 367,000 ounces a year of gold for 18 years. Uh, with this uh, big uh, resource bump at the Gosselin Zone, um, I guess one question is, um, with Agnico merging with Kirkland Lake, who is uh, going to line up to do a deal with Iron Gold to get Cote and Gosselin? Um, interesting times there. Um, moving to Ecuador, Sol Gold announced a mineral resource estimate for its Tandayama America Porphyry Copper Gold Deposit um, as part of its Cascabel, pro Cascabel project in uh, northern Ecuador, which is some three kilometers north of its Alpala deposit. TAM hosts an indicated resource of 233 million tons, grading 0.33% copper equivalent, which contains some 530,000 tons of copper and 1.2 million ounces of gold. Um, the TAM deposit adds further copper and gold mineralization to the uh, Alpala metal inventory at Cascabel, and possibly it could um, impact some of the project economics, uh, providing a means to sort of get some production sooner rather than later, which could be a real fillip for the multi-billion dollar development of Alpala, which hosts uh, some 2.7 billion tons, grading 0.53% copper equivalent in the measured and indicated categories. Sticking in South America and closer to where I am, Collective Mining made a discovery at the Donut Target, an outcropping grassroots target at its Guayabales gold project in Caldas in Colombia. Drilling intersected 104 meters, grading 1.3 grams per tonne gold equivalent from surface. Um, Donut is located at the end of a zone, hosting a cluster of mineralized breccia bodies which can be traced along stripe for 550 meters. Guayabalas is just to the north of where Aris Gold is uh, looking to develop its Marmato Gold development project. A positive start to drilling there for collective, and because of that, it's expanding its drilling program from 7,500 to 10,000 meters and adding a second drill rig. Um, continuing with the discoveries theme, 
FPX Nickel announced a new nickel discovery from drilling at the Van target within its Dakar Nickel District in central British Columbia in Canada. The first two widely spaced holes at Van, which is six kilometers north of its Baptiste deposit, returned some of the highest grading broad intervals of near surface nickel mineralization ever drilled at Dakar, with the highlights including an intersect of 101 meters grading 0.15% DTR nickel. And the company says that DTR nickel is Davis tube magnetically recovered nickel. Um, in normal nickel terms, that's about 0.2%. Um, with more drilling results to be announced over the coming weeks, the higher grade at Van could uh, broaden the development options for Baptiste, where the company has uh, an updated preliminary economic assessment outlining a 35-year mine life to produce an average of 99 million pounds a year of nickel in ferro-nickel briquettes following a pre-production cost of 1.7 billion US dollars. And finally, uh, in Mexico, Discovery Silver announced an updated mineral resource estimate on its Cordero project in Chihuahua, in which 87% of the contained metal is now in the measured and indicated categories. Cordero no, now hosts a, a sulfide resource of 540 million tons grading 20 grams per tonne silver with some gold, lead and zinc in there for 837 million ounces of contained silver equivalent. Um, the updated resource will be used to support a preliminary economic assessment scheduled for completion later this quarter, with the company looking to outline an average production rate of at least 15 million ounces of silver equivalent per year for a minimum of 15 years. That FBX story is, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I love Twitter, because uh, when those uh, that announcement came out, uh, Paul, um, I suddenly saw these Twitter threads where everybody was talking about metallurgy and then kind of going back and forth. But you kind of learn something uh, just because they have kind of a different uh, geology there for uh, how their uh, nickel is uh, trapped in the rocks. Um, I'm always interested in uh, the news that uh, makes the broadest headlines uh, in the mining space. And this week it was, you saw headlines around the twin metals decision. The U.S. Forest Service on Wednesday proposed a 20-year ban on Minnesota's boundary waters region, a step that would block Antipagasta's twin metals, copper and nickel mine project. The announcement reversed a decision by former President Donald Trump and set up a review of how mining could affect popular outdoor recreational areas. That, according to reporting by Reuters, it freezes the issuance of new mining leases and permits or regions for two years. Uh, the under proposed underground mine would have become a major U.S. supplier of copper for electric vehicles, which has used twice as much of the red metal as those in internal combustion engines. It's very interesting right now seeing this uh, pull with uh, the Biden administration uh, because you have, on the one hand, you're needing to have uh, these metals because we really see, again, we're in the commodity super cycle. We need all this metals and we certainly need a domestic supply of these metals, but you also have an administration that is very friendly to environmental concerns and also kind of going back on some of the things that occurred under uh, the uh, Trump administration. Paul? Um, you've, you've pretty much uh, covered what I was going to add to that. You know, it does seem quite odd that, um, you know, in the last few years, the U.S. government has put out lists of, you know, more than 30 metals it considers strategic. Um, copper is a key one, key metal for the energy transition, not just in the U.S., but globally. And yet uh, in the U.S., 
copper development projects in Arizona, Alaska, Minnesota, and probably other places are facing a lot of resistance from US government agencies. Richard Atkinson, uh, CEO, President and CEO of Freeport McMoran, made a, a comment to that effect this week in their results. He said, you know, if you guys want the copper, you've got to let us build the projects. So you're saying we've been podcasting too long together, Paul? We started to think a lot and finish each other's sentences. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's, that's good for me, but that's a problem for you. Um, in, uh, uh, you know, every week we have a weekly battery uh, deal bonanza, and uh, this week was Toyota Motors' uh, North American unit uh, set on Monday that will invest $3.4 billion on U.S. automotive battery development and mm. production in the United States through 2030. I want to turn back to our guest, Sarush. One thing that's been very interesting me in the space within the battery material space is, is that uh, we see so many people that are kind of developing new technology. Um, I have an interview that's going up with Ioneer, for instance, and they've been very much in the lab right now developing uh, their special process that they're going to have for uh, getting their lithium extraction out of where they're working in Nevada. I know that you have an intensive uh, program just regarding the own things that you're doing regarding the chemistry with it. Um, it's just that it's very different in this EV space. It seems that every Everybody's coming up with these custom solutions. And I don't know if that has to do with ESG. I don't know if that has to do with it's just in a new space. Um, I don't know if this is developing IP. So that's going to be making you competitive. I mean, I think about if, you know, if you have a gold project that has the right feasibility, you're just going to go down to Mezzo and then you're going to buy all the plants and then they're just going to set up a mineral processing, uh, mineral processing circuit for you. How come there seems to be so much, um, how would you say, customer new solutions uh, within the material space, within the EV space, Roosh? Well, I think the first is to is is to is, is to see for the cars to become electric, right? So they have to meet certain requirements. The charging speed should be faster, the range should be higher, cost should be lower. So that drives a lot of innovation in the battery space, right? So uh, we're we're seeing right now technologies like liquid liquid electrolyte lithium ion batteries. It's the same thing that that Tesla and CATLs of the world is actually using today. But the trend of technology is moving toward solid state type technologies, which are like much higher stability and also safety it has, higher capacity and range it has, and, and eventually after lithium air, metal air type batteries. So new technologies brings uh, requirements for new materials and those new materials all the time they're being mined and when they come out of the ground, they're not necessarily in the form factor usable by the, by the battery industry. So they need to be purified and processed again, right? That, that, that's called second processing. That's, that's where there's a ton of innovation is going to, to process these products faster and cheaper. Uh, if you look at the cost of batteries, 70% is coming from the material. So that's where the money is going. And that's where uh, innovation drives cost reduction. And pretty much results into lower cost EVs for people to buy it cheaper. Taking on board your, your comments there, Shrews, it seems to be, you know, Michael just mentioned Toyota's dropping about $3 billion to build some battery plants in the US. Um, a couple of months ago in September, Ford announced a similar sort of investment for battery plants in the US with a, if I remember correctly, a South Korean battery company. Um, there, there seems to be a, a prevailing assumption amongst the automotive companies and perhaps even the battery companies that, you know, we'll, we'll build the facilities and we'll be able to get the materials we need to, to make the stuff we need to make. And, you know, how realistic is that? You know, it's one thing to, to build a, a battery plant. Um, it's another thing to go out and buy the, the chemicals you need to make those batteries. And it's quite another thing for the, the 
manufacturers of those battery chemicals to actually get the, the, the dirt out of the ground that they need to make the chemicals with. Um, they, they seem to be focusing on that sort of mid, mid-tier uh, part of the chain, not really looking at right at the start where the stuff comes from. Well, uh, yeah, for instance, Ford does the deal with LG. They come together, they build a facility, and that plant is supposed to produce quite a lot of lithium-ion batteries, but now it's up to LG to, to, to find the raw materials, and Ford is probably is agnostic where the material is coming. They all want the battery for the car, right? So, so but, but what, what we see, like uh, LG and CATL, Panasonic, Samsung, they're coming upstream talking uh, with the supplier of materials involved. And you, you see from companies like Johnson Mate is making cathodes all the way to the, the miners of lithium and cobalt and iron that they're in discussion directly with VWs of the world and, and with those type of companies to, to, to get off days for them and, and, to, and to secure the supply for them. Having said that, uh, we have about 70 million cards sold worldwide every year, right? So imagine when we want to have all these 70 million is actually EV with the batteries. Every car has like 7,000 batteries. You just started doing the math, the amount of material consumed is just, it's very high. And I mean, if you look at lithium by itself, there's just not enough lithium out there. I mean, there has to be a lot of more mining, a lot more support for those for the supply of the lithium. Uh, and at the same time, the, the, the technology behind the batteries is also changing very quickly. Something that you hear constantly out there is more silicon in the anode, where five years ago it was all graphite. And then silicon is like 10 times more efficient than, than, than the graphite. So as a result, you need 10 times less of silicon in the anode if the anode is fully done by silicon, right? So this technology evolution happening at the same, uh, same time that they're building gigafactories. And that makes it very complicated. Uh, it requires that you have a great forecast of, of what technology is going to be the winner. Uh, as a result of that, I think OEMs are just sticking to, to the best commodity battery production technology, which is like liquid electrolyte technology. They just don't touch the new things, just want to build gigafactories, go out of 20 years, get their capex paid for, and then they, they look at the next gen technology. But it's very challenging. Everybody is building batteries and very little supplies out there. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, it was interesting when we were talking earlier about uh, the difference between, um, you know, uh, the types of graphite supply, uh, the large flake versus uh, the small uh, supply. Um, I, I just say graphite has really just been a um, kind of a, a sleeper a story. Uh, just when you look at uh, some of these uh, huge hits that uh, the companies have had over the past year. So I think, for instance, uh, you know, uh, Montreal's own uh, Nouveau Mon graphite. I mean, that's up 255% this year. Uh, there's also Next Source Materials, which is operating out of Madagascar, and that's got uh, the backing of Mick Davis, uh, the old hand with Glencore, uh, that's up 440% this year as well. So, um, Sarush, it's just if you have the right type of graphite, you're going to be doing well. Sure. Uh, the, 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 when, when you look at the graphite market by itself, the production is like 80% or more in China. Right. So so the challenge is the dependency to China for the supply of the raw material for batteries and and. People in the market, they don't like that. They want to have North American supply. And that's why the interest really come to these companies, these junior miners, and, and they can have a great business going forward because uh, the existing graphite mine in Canada, in Quebec is finishing. 
and very soon there would be need for for new graphite and and, and Nouveau Monde's great company is right there in Quebec. It's 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 close to us, and and they're going to be able to supply the battery market. So that's a great potential for those companies, and, and as a result of that, the, the share prices are, is reflecting that interest. Uh, though in general, looking at let's say five to ten years. Um, the key for, for these companies is to be able to talk the language of the OEM. So there is a big difference in terms of culture, in terms of the language that the OEM talks and the mining companies talk, right? Uh, companies like graphite, they're not really mining because there's no open market to sell graphite like iron. They have to sell one by one, customer by customer. There's a lot of specific uh, product requirements each one of them has. So these are more to me a technology companies than a mining company. Uh, you know, if I could, um, if, if you were stepping back and then you were looking at, uh, the EV space, uh, you know, you have a solution right now with Nano Explorer, uh, just providing uh, graphene, but, uh, do you see any other particular areas that you see where there's this particular type of bottleneck or there's like a particular opportunity, whether if you had like a, I don't know, a terrific rare earth uh, company, would you still be in the material side or is there something else that uh, might be prove a real bottleneck that somebody has to have a business solution for to uh, create uh, battery materials, uh, kind of keep the ball rolling forward? Uh, so, I mean, uh, I, I guess there's a different part of the supply chain that needs to be localized. We, we are seeing the result of pandemic and disruption in the supply chain that brought up the question of, Maybe we should rely more on the local supply chain. The fact that we produce something here and we consume it right here, and then shipping things around the world. Uh, so, so that that opens up a lot of opportunities for different type of materials that has been mined or produced locally, right? I mean, from lithiums to cobalt to to nickel to to iron. These are the type of materials that are going to get a lot of market share, especially the ones that are done in 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 the America, North and South America. Um, I've asked this question of other guests, but, um, you know, there seems to be all of this investment, uh, that's happening in, uh, China and, uh, you just look at what they're doing with, uh, the nickel mines are developing through, uh, Southeast Asia and Indonesia and the supply into there. We also see a Zijin, uh, which is, uh, put its, uh, Serbian copper mine, uh, on, um, uh, it is, uh, opened up production. Never mind what they're also doing with, uh, Kamal Kakalua in, uh, with, uh, Ivanhoe. Uh, so you see uh, all of that material going to China. It, and then I think Benchmark was saying they're looking at about two thirds of uh, batteries are just going to be coming out of um, China. It would seem that they would just really have industrial scale. Uh, what do you see? You mentioned it before, uh, just that uh, as your pliers want to have um, a North American presence and it's important to have North American source materials. Is this something that are we even going to be able to catch up with the scale? Because I think that scale is really going to matter uh, for being able to produce the lowest cost batteries. Well, it depends. It depends on the type of customer, right? So we have Ford and uh, GM and Tesla of the world that are consumer of pretty large quantity of the batteries per year. Then you have a lot of uh, smaller type companies that they need a lot less of a battery, but they're moving toward electrification. Let's say bus manufacturing in Quebec, we have Lion Bus, great company, and these companies are are buying a small volume of the batteries, but but that's enough for the bus or 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 the type of product that they make. So those are small smaller type companies. They always have the flexibility to buy it on the open market in the future, buy some from China or other places in the world. But 
But if you are fourth of the world and you know you have a 150,000 uh, uh, car production plant, uh, you need like 10 gigawatt hour battery facility just for that. I mean, that's just very difficult to, to rely on, on overseas supply chain. That's why they're investing a lot with the battery maker in North America. Thank you. Um, I want to turn to our number of the week. We always start with our guest. Sarush, what's your number? So, so what is what has uh, been reported uh, in 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 the in the in the week uh, was uh, is the number twenty. It's it's the fact that uh, uh, some of the companies they incorporated graphene into the uh, into the cement and they saw that at about twenty five percent reduction in the thickness of the cement. So lighter weighting by because of twenty five percent increase in the strength of the cement, and that is important because it translates to about a quarter reduction in the in the CO2 emission that comes from cement when applied to the world. So it was pretty interesting news out there. And uh, of course, uh, cement uh, being one of the, the top producers of uh, carbon, uh, you know, of, of CO2 emissions. Niels, what's your number? My number is uh, 24, specifically 24 million. Uh, this was the number of shares that were traded by, I usually talk about gold. It's, I'm surprised we're gonna talk about Bitcoin. Uh, 24 million was the number of shares traded in the new uh, Bitcoin ETF, the, the PowerShares uh, 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 Bitcoin ETF strategy, it was the second biggest uh, uh, ETF debu- uh, debut uh, debut on the market. So um, it's just it's 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 a really interesting product, though. I mean, it, it's not really a Bitcoin product. It's actually it tracks the the futures, the CME Bitcoin price futures, which is settled in cash. Um, so like there really has nothing to do with Bitcoin other than it's maybe a bet on prices. In um, well, just a sort of question there, Niels, and I don't expect you to have the answer. It, well, most financial instruments, people invest in them tend to put a stop loss on. Um, ETFs would be a typical example of that. How on earth do you put a, how do you set a stop loss on something that trades as volatile as, as Bitcoin, even if it is within an ETF, because uh, you, you mentioned when you talked about it earlier, the, the, the way the price came off, uh, you'd just be ripping through those, those stop losses. And yeah, I, like, and it's, price. and I don't like, I don't exactly know how it works because it tracks, it tracks the futures contracts, which it, you know, like it's, and that's completely different than the actual price of Bitcoin. So um, yeah, it, it seems it, I, I don't think the world is quite ready for a, a Bitcoin ETF because it, it is quite volatile. Like it, it lost $5,000 in just a matter of days. So yeah. <laughs> Paul, what's your number? I'm going to go for something nice and safe. Um, and following on from your super cycle segment, Michael, mm-hmm. mine is 11000 uh, specifically $11,000 per ton. Uh, copper was approaching that this week before, um, before the end of the week, and it sold off a little bit. So uh, we're getting back into very, very heady days for copper. My number of the week is 200 million, 200 million. Uh, Paul and Niels, you might have seen this headline. Uh, the Financial Times reported that one of the backers for the metals company is not forking over the expected funds for the deep sea mining adventure. Kiko interviewed uh, the metals company CEO, Gerard Barron, uh, a couple of months ago. That was previously known as Deep Green. Uh, the company had recently listed on the NASDAQ and the stock has sunk after news of the funding miss. Uh, that's it for ours. Uh, Sarush, is there any news that is going to be coming out of your company? in the next 12 months that people should take a look at? 
Yeah, so we are uh, right now building uh, our uh, Volta Explorer battery facility in the rest of Montreal. So it's it's Nano Explorer joint venture with Martin Rea, which is uh, which is targeting to build the first gigafactory of Canada. The pilot facility, it's a one megawatt hour facility in the rest of Montreal, going to be up and running in Q1. So that makes us very excited. Reach out to us. You can follow me at Michael McRae. That's McRae with two C's. Niels is at Niels underscore C. Paul is at CGS 2021 Gold. Paul, any announcements around your Columbia Gold Show? Yes, we're about, what, three weeks away, give or take, uh, 16th and 17th of November. Um, People are signing up rapidly. uh, We're going to have a a packed event. Saroosh, how can people get a hold of you? You can always reach out to info at nanoexplore.ca and I will be in contact with them. If you like what you hear, tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe. Sarush Nazarpur, thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. It's Sarush Nazarpur, and my name is Michael McRae, and you have been listening to Kiko Roundtable.